Welcome to Under the Skin with me, Russell Brand. This episode is sponsored by my new book, Recovery, which is available now on Amazon or on russellbrand.com. Also, if you want to come and see me live, you can. Birmingham, 5th of December. Leicester, 6th of December. I had a great show there the other day. Brixton, 19th of December. The 18th is sold out, but the 19th, there are still a few tickets available. Go to russellbrand.com. It's going to be a fantastic, wild show. Now, it's time for Under the Skin. Jacques Peretti is an investigative journalist and broadcaster whose award-winning television series include The Men Who Made Us Spend, The Super Rich and Us, and Trillion Pound Island. He's written articles for The Guardian, Wired, and The Huffington Post, and his book, Done, The Secret Deals That Are Changing Our World, tells the story of the billion-dollar handshakes that never make the news but are revolutionising everything we do. Jacques, welcome to our show. Thank you. Bless, Bless you for inviting me. We're really thrilled that you're here. Um, just to give you a quick understanding of like what, what, what my motivation is, is yeah. I'm at university do, doing a course, Religion in Global Politics, so as university. I'm really, really enjoying it, getting an academic understanding of things that I've yeah, intuitively yeah, understood for a little while. Now, like w- w- your field of expertise is the, the often submerged financial narrative that's actually governing and dominating our world from an ecological perspective, uh, 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 media. Can, yeah. can you th- no, follow the money. That's all that you need to do. That old um, cliche, but, it's, but it happens to be a cliche for a reason, which is if you follow the money and you understand where the money's coming from, who's making the money, what the economics underlying everything we do from the coffee we buy to the job we go to to why we decide to buy that phone over over another phone. All of these things have economics at their heart. And so if you don't understand economics, you don't understand how the world works. What then should we understand about the world as we're experiencing it now? What are the, uh, who are the dominant economic players that are determining what happens in the lives of are we ordinary people? Well, I think we are. I mean, Trump has thrown a kind of spanner in the works and he's kind of, you know, I, I suppose what that represents, as we know, is it represents a kind of dislocation of the old the old uh, status quo. But that was because that wasn't working. And essentially what we've had over the last 40 years, and he's a kind of, I suppose, a symptom or public um, uh, creation, is, is um, what we call corporate capture, which is, I suppose, the, the creeping end of government uh, elected government and the rise of global corporations and we kind of know about that but I think what's really interesting about that for me is that corporations haven't done this um, out of some kind of evil Machiavellian plot it's just it's just been a kind of failure of government to be able to to run the countries that they supposedly run you have you have a world that I see is kind of that, that, that operates on two different levels you have horizontally 
um, corporations who operate across the globe. So they don't have any they don't have any need to worry about territorial boundaries. Governments op- operate vertically. They operate within the narrow constraints of the geographical state of which they operate. The two just don't meet. And I think as the world's become increasingly globalised, corporations have just got the whip hand. And essentially government has become a kind of a civil service for corporations. So the nation state, which is a relatively modern idea, has already been made in in power terms redundant because of the global power of transnational corporations and the sort of resurgence of an uh, an ethno Exactly. identity politics is a sort of a response to that so who like uh, who are uh, yeah. the corporations yeah and i think i think that that's not you know i think i think that's um well, what's interesting about that is that um that's just the kind of logic of the way economics has gone you know i mean if you look at you if you look at putin he's really he's not really the leader of russia what well, he's the ceo of russia plc trump is the ceo of a ailing corporation called the United States, mm. you know. And so what, I think it's interesting that we have business people and autocrats who are increasingly coming to prominence because there's a kind of almost implicit realisation that that's the way the state has to be run. So it's not a sort of left-right wow. kind of thing. It's just that that's the nature of the way the world is going. The state has to mimic corporate models because the corporate model is now the dominant Absolutely. model. The Absol- state idea is sort of redundant, doesn't Absolutely. make sense now, and we know that, but we can't admit that because otherwise democracy becomes a f- explicitly a farce. Absolutely, and you had that under, the, under Cameron and under Blair. You had the first sort of intimations of this where they started talking about the, the John Lewis model or you know, they'd mm. start to say, oh, what if Britain was run like John Lewis? Lewis, you know, and then that sort of got... At least the adverts would be good. Yeah, exactly, exactly. (laughs) And now it's become the Google model. So it's like, how can, you know, how can... And I went to this uh, conference where, which was basically run by, you know, it was was organised by some big corporate, uh, big corporations, and they asked me to go and speak to them. And I said, well, said, have you not seen my documentaries? You know, why are you asking me to come to them? Well, we were interested in what what you had to say. And the the way they were talking is they were talking about corporate tax, specifically about corporation tax and the avoidance, which is an issue in the air, remains an issue in the air. They were sort of saying, you know, tax is such a redundant idea. It's such an inefficient way of collecting money from us. We don't want to pay it. Governments don't know how to collect it. Why don't we run the NHS? You know, why don't we just do it directly? And the sort of what was staggering was the kind of the breadth of their ambition. They didn't see any limits on what they should be doing. Yeah. Well, well, well we had Professor David Harvey, uh, Marxist yes. professor in here, and he says like sort of stitched into the ideology of capitalism, which obviously I don't need to tell you, but to reiterate for our listeners, is the, the idea of infinite limitless growth. So yes. like, and, and that Marxist theory at origin points out the flaw that... We've got limited resources, so inevitably capitalism will have to mask itself. We're going to need a critical theory that continually exposes the uh, fallacy of a model that has infinite growth. What you had was an amazing moment. I mean, when you look at disposable consumerism, and I mean, mean, if you look at the way that the planet is going in terms of limited resources and what's ultimately going to happen. Disposable consumerism, do you just mean? So, I mean, things that we throw away. So, stuff that we buy, you know, things that we buy cheaply. So, the rise of. You know, the whole rise of high street rise of Primark, TK Maxx, you know, Lidl, all these all these these brands that basically produce goods that we could buy cheaply. When you look at that moment, 2000, around about 2000, that's the very moment where global economies are beginning to stagnate. Wages are beginning to freeze. What we'd had was 40 years of 
quote unquote growth where prices rose, but so did wages in tandem with it. At that moment, suddenly, what happens? Wages freeze. People's living standards can no longer increase. So what do we do? We make products that cost next to nothing. So people have the appearance of improving living standards, but products just getting cheaper and cheaper. And of course, the price is paid by the planet. And so this is like, these are the kind of the economics underlying consumerism, underlying where we are right now. Who are the most powerful global corporations? Well, when we it talk used about this... to be oil. It used to be the oil companies and the mining companies and uh, and the retail and so and the food Unilever. So Unilever, Monsanto, Nestle, Coca Cola. Those companies run food. Really, those were the big ones. Yeah, yeah, so and the, sugar you, the, and fat yeah, and food. All, yeah, and it, and they, what's extraordinary? Um, uh, Oxfam did an amazing uh, graphic where basically what they've done is taken the six hundred or so biggest companies on the planet and then they've drawn their connections to the bigger company that owns them mm. right so it's like this extraordinary family tree which ends up with literally five companies running everything and you think that's extraordinary you know that's like you know if you wanted to believe in conspiracy theories well you know just look at the graphics so you know it's not you don't have to believe in conspiracy theories to understand that very few companies are in charge of everything but now in the last you know, 15 years, what we've seen is the rise of the tech companies, obviously, you know, Google, you know, Apple, uh, Microsoft, Amazon. These are the companies that now people consider to be the most powerful companies on the And on are the they the most powerful? Because, because of what they own for the future. They'll own data. They own data. They own everything, everything there is to know about all of us. So, and so are to they, that they're degree, prospectively the most powerful. Are you saying that the way that we evaluate power is changing? It's not necessarily yes. now about capital. It's mm. about potential power because of data. Yeah. Data is the data new capital. Data is the new oil. Data is the new oil. You know. Because the Why? Well, because it's the most precious commodity on the planet. Because if you own data, that means you, you can own. market specifically to people. You can control them and you once control you, their consuming. Once you've got Russell Brand's house and Russell Brand's house's heating is controlled by a phone, which collects all the data on, and then collects all the data on what you buy, collects all the data on where you've been for the last 48 hours, they know absolutely everything or will know absolutely everything there is to know about you. What you buy, what you do, what you like, what you dislike—that—that that is power. Because what I heard is that sort of a, the, it was it, maybe the word I heard was something like the uberfication that yeah. people will know that uh, the way you well, if once they know your habits mm. and your patterns, then like there, there could be a sliding scale of oh you need a plumber do you? Well, yeah, it's Christmas yeah. Eve. That's yeah. a thousand pounds <laughs> you can afford to pay it. That you can have a kind of a flexible capitalism mm. that's responding to the consumer and extracting as much as possible. Yeah. What I suppose is so one of the things that you seem to suggest early jack mm. is that without some oppositional force the limitless growth of uh, corporatism mm. will devour everything and we're already at the point where it's devouring the planet yeah. itself and like the, the, the traditionally we would imagine the opposing force to be provided by the state but mm. the state has now become essentially the administrator for for corporatism so that that opposition I, won't be provided i think what you've seen with you know and it's i'm not the first person to say this but you know when you see brexit and trump you see in a kind of a sort of inarticulated response to the end of the state you see people wanting to take power back because they can sense an end 
but they don't, you know, do, do you see what I mean? There's a, there's a sense in which the state has lost its potency. Yes, before we can articulate it, we know it. We know, yes, oh, this doesn't it. work no it's, more. It's felt and, you know, people yeah. understand it. And so, but I think, I think what someone said, one um, entrepreneur said rather chillingly and brilliantly to me, he said, what we do is we invent a problem and then provide the solution. And so that's really what a lot of these products are about. When you talk about data and you talk about the plumber and so on, what you really want to do is you want to start giving people options that they never knew they had. What like? What's well, the example of so that? So, for instance, you know, if you watch this series, you're going to like this series. If you like that series, you would want to go on this holiday. If you want to go on that holiday, you'll like to buy this car. If you want to buy this car, you might like to go dating these 27 different women. You know, there's an endless, endless tree that can be opened up in terms of what your consumer decisions will be off the back of one consumer decision. And it's like that you're trapped on a, a plateau of consumerism continually. You don't have another role in your life. Your role is to consume. Shopping is everything because, you know, when George Bush was asked um, after 9-11, what could the public do after 9-11 Twin Towers? He said, go shopping. That's that was a, his solution. Yes. Go shopping wasn't a frivolous thing. Go shopping is actually what Elon Musk's solution is to the ro- to the automation revolution. He says that essentially the only thing we can do productive to the economy is spend money. Consumerism is what it's all based upon. Debt is absolutely at the heart of it. So the so the increasing debt that we have goes hand in hand with the need for us to continue buying stuff. And so what you'll come to Elon Musk has said we'll all be paid a universal wage. For, doing, for basically going shopping. Once robots do everything, robots will be taxed, we'll get the money, and then we'll go down to Primark. And that's, that is the future for humanity. That George W. Bush moment, uh, it's curious, coming uh, as it did off the back of a seismic um, event that de- represented in so many ways, perhaps some unseen, a cultural clash that uh, that his uh, response to it was go shopping. It... it, it is the modern equivalent of saying pray go and pray because yeah. that that is our ideology that yeah. is when we talk about extremism in the more ev- uh, obvious forms of, sort of religious extremism we seem unaware that the m- dominant extremist ideology is one where we are consumers and like you said entering potentially into a time where you are nothing but a consumer where well, you're Absolutely. And I think this I think what's interesting is when we move to online shopping, what's that going to do to the cathedrals of consumerism? You know, the shopping centers, these places where we go to worship the God of shopping, because in a sense that that replacement of God with shopping has been with us for half a century. It's kind of what we know. You know, we're at a shopping is is a profound is a profound thing. It's not only profound in terms of how the economy operates. It's also profound in terms of what it does neurologically to us. You know, we talk glibly about shopping addiction, retail therapy and so on. But those feelings, that endorphin rush, you know, that release of happiness that has to be replicated, that addiction. And you know about this stuff, you know, that addiction to that feeling has to be replicated faster and faster and more often and more often. The shopping is at the heart of who we are, how we define ourselves in relation to our neighbours and our friends. It's absolutely everything. It's the heart of capitalism. Yes, yes. It's the, way that we, it's the way we see ourselves. If we're not consuming, we're not existing. Now, whilst I see that the economic analysis that you're conducting, is the, it seems to me, 
is the truest way of understanding this problem. It's valid, it's demonstrable, it's scientific. Mm. You can go, look, the, this is where yeah. power is. Look at how it's responding. Look at the decisions that are being made. Look at this reality. Look at these deals. That's why you're living in this reality. That's the that's yeah. a way of tracing it. So in terms of change, it, it, it seems it would be very difficult to implement change on an economic level because there isn't, uh, by definition, all, all of the power is held by people that want to maintain these systems. I think if you understand why they got Earth to the place it's in, which was money, you understand how money is perhaps the only way that will get us out. You know, I spoke to Peter Thiel, who created PayPal. He's a Silicon Valley billionaire. He said the whole problem with the way we framed global warming has been in terms of a moral argument. We've, put, we've, we've, we've said to the public, this is bad. People don't care. Mm. <laughs> Daniel Kahneman, the behavioral economist, said there's an extraordinary moment. Basically, when, the, when a problem is too far away, we don't deal with it. When it's too close, it's too late. <laughs> he said there's a window of oppo- opportunity where something can be done. And that's literally where we are with Earth right now. But you see, the P- to go back to the P- what Peter Thiel was saying, he said if there's money to be made from saving Earth, and believe you me, we'll have clouds with Evian logos on them. We'll have cows with, you know, uh, Monsanto logos on them. You know, if, if that's what's required to sort the earth out is to find a way of making money from the salvation of the earth, then that's the way forward. Yes, but there isn't. <laughs> a slightly bleak uh, view. But, uh, um, yeah, yeah, I mean, another yeah. quote that recurs in this programme is it's easier to envisage the end of the world than, the, than it is to envisage the end of capitalism. Yeah. But this uh, economically well, led... One will come before the other. Yeah, seemingly. Um, uh, but I can't, you know, I can't see how it can be amended through economic means, unless you sort of, tried, well, you for a moment yeah. there, touched on that the, there are sort of biochemical imperatives to purchase and spending. We're yeah. doing it because we get a feeling yeah. inside our anatomy within our consciousness for me like the the opposition can only change if people start looking at reality in a very different way that's what i think is being suggested the way that we intuitively are starting to understand that nation state is ending or is already defunct except for in a a, a superficial way uh, i think that we we also know that huge change is required outside of the systems that that we currently live within i'm kind of a believer in in the economics myself, I tend to think, you know, I interviewed Thomas Piketty and he's kind of an interesting guy, the French economist, you know, he wrote Capital. And I said to him, what, you know, this moment, you know, what's to be done? And he said, well, you know, with corporations, we could, um, you know, we could create a global tax system. We could create, we could retool the IMF and turn them into a force with teeth that could deal with corporations. I said that you're basically like asking for Thunderbirds to go in. That's not going to happen. Mm. And he said, yeah, the other thing is, well, we could have a revolution. And I said, well, in what way are we going to have a revolution? Because the revolutions that you look at, traditionally, you look at the Russian revolution, you even look at the failed 68 attempt at a revolution. What were they? They were, the, they were on, the, on an economic rise where you had a prosperous middle class that was demanding more. What we have now, and he said, yeah, but what you have now is a potentially combustible force of a middle class who are, are disenfranchised from what they believe they're entitled to from the last 40 years, plus a huge underclass of people who literally cannot exist. And that together is a recipe for revolution. That's what Piketty was saying. And I think, you know, what you do have, what we do have in history is we have the inevitability of change. That's one thing for sure. So whatever we feel is now the catastrophe of the moment we're in, that is going to change. 
what which way it's going to go who knows but things are becoming more dramatic the cycles are becoming more dramatic and as adam curtis said in his film hypernormalization we've normalized the catastrophe to a point where we accept that as part of the cycle and so that's an interesting thing We'll be talking more about revolution towards the end of our conversation. But to uh, emphasise and highlight now the nature of this catastrophe, can you explain to us what's happening within agriculture that demonstrates the severity of the problem? You shouldn't have asked me that. (laughs) I will tell you, it's pretty extraordinary. It's pretty extraordinary because you shouldn't have asked me that because I just don't want to tell people what's what's going on. Why? No, I'll tell you. It's so bad. No, I'll tell you. I mean, basically, the WHO did a report um, two years ago now that backed up a lot of science that was being done across the globe. They sort of put it in one place, and they basically analysed a lake in the Haute-Savoie region of France, which had been undisturbed for a a thousand years, really. They looked at the sediment in that lake, and it was a kind of really interesting experiment. Bear with me on this. What they found was that the sediment had been pretty much undisturbed up until the Industrial Revolution. Then, obviously, things, you know, it had started to change. The nature of the sediment had changed. What happened in the last 40 years was that basically the nutrients had completely depleted. So as a result of intensive farming, of intensive farming not just to create wheat, but also to create basically animals and dairy for us to eat and consume... Um, we had leached the soil of all its nutrients, resulting in the fact that we have just 60, they estimated, 60 harvests left in the planet. Wow. So that's sort of uh, sort of a food Armageddon is approaching. Yeah. And it's kind of, and again, you know, when you talk to people in Silicon Valley, they say, you know, we're, we're across this stuff <laughs> because it's an opportunity. And you say, well, in what way is an opportunity? Synthetic soil, vertical farming, off, uh, um, off-world farming. They're talking about the Martian for real. Could we turn the moon into an agricultural place? Could we move all the heavy industry into space? That's what Jeff Bezos's plan is. You know, this is the stuff that they're dealing with now. You know, ten years ago, it was all tech. It was all Silicon Valley was all about going into go, going into the micro of you know the micro detail of how a phone works. What can a phone deliver as a computer? Now it's like looking super out to macro. space. It's all a super macro. And that's where all the R&D is. When I think about my own life, it's kind of evident that there is a, a problem just from the way that I consume. I'm a person that's aware of these kind of arguments, but like when I think of my domestic waste, I think, oh, God, that shouldn't be getting thrown away. Yeah, this yeah. doesn't seem right. That there is a detachment. There is a lack of consciousness. And I, I can see how sort of this uh, is a personal is a personal yeah. problem on level. And I think we, we feel hugely disempowered. You think, oh, I'll put that in the recycling. <laughs> That'll help. Maybe I should do exactly. some more composting. But you will, in the face of these forces, it feels irrelevant. The other thing that um, yeah, I'm learning, yeah, yeah. a massive disjunct in, in terms yeah. of power yeah, and yeah. what a theme totally. that is between totally. the personal and the power. The other thing I get from what you just said, Jacques, is that when they talk about you know, oh, we'll just, you know, colonize the moon or whatever it is this week. Yeah. You know, like it makes me realize how detached the powerful are from mm. the lives of ordinary yeah. people. Because you mentioned a moment ago that the combustible revolutionary engine will be a, a, a middle class, which is like a, yeah. a, a, a lot of people feeling like that the privilege that they're entitled to, the resources and comfort that they're entitled to is being eroded. And then a giant mm. underclass. Now, that underclass is as long ago 
been nominated as disposable, yeah. whether it was in colonisation, slavery, onwards, perhaps even earlier than that, that there's a huge percentage mm-hmm. of the population that we simply, we do not care. You are, mach- you are already machines, and when yeah. we get better machines to replace you, you know, like we're, if we can find a nice way of yeah. framing genocide, that's what's well, going to happen. You know, that's, you know, the, there's, an, there's a brilliant, um, Paul Mason does a brilliant thing um, called the car wash paradox. And it's basically, what was, what was the car wash? The car wash in the 1950s was this amazing, shiny new piece of technology, right? Here it was, it was going to automate, fluffy buds would come out and clean your car and it would all look amazing. What's happened in the last five years? Car wash, the last 10 years, car washes have started closing down, right? They're in prime locations in the centres of cities, which can then be turned into luxury flats. All these automated machines have disappeared. And what has replaced them? Weird dead spaces on the outskirts of town where you have immigrant labor or cheap labor doing the job that machines were doing. So, you know, one option, you know, the, the machines have been made, made redundant by human beings. The difference being that human beings have absolutely no rights. They can be sacked there and then. And the, and the whole thing can be taken down in 24 hours. Right. So mm. that is one future that we might have. The machines might not replace everyone. What we might have is we might have this incredible moment. You know, what we see on the news nightly is we say full employment. Employment's never been higher. And yet they say also wages are stagnating. How can this how can these two things correlate at mm. the same time? Well, because, right, because full because employment would mean increase in part time work because of gig economy, <clears throat> because people what it's you'll have economy. is you'll have the, um, people are working for like Deliveroo, Uber, oh. you know, um, so basically with no right, you know, the very limited rights, such as we decided this so week. It's a reversal so, of so, all of the things that were fought for in the last century. But with no one working for any money. So, you know, is that the other future that we might have? These, these are these are very radical changes to the structure of society and, you know, a society that was kind of, you know, maybe what we're doing is going back to, we had, we had a period of stability from 1940 roughly to 19, the end of the nineties. So what we're doing is going back to that previous period, a period of huge human instability. You know, we call that, that class, the precariat, you know, we're all part of the precariat, well, the precariat. You're in a instead precarious being, position. Yeah. Instead of being a proletariat, it's beyond that. It's the, the ultimate precarious class, the global class. One of the themes I've noticed over the course of these podcasts is the way that power functions is to, as best as possible, morph to facilitate its ongoing survival. E.g., like once slavery gets banned, it's like, oh, what's the best? What's the closest we can approximate slavery without using that word? Well, you could pay people yeah. next to nothing. Yeah. And when you give like sort of like that car wash example, it's like that. And, and what concerns me when you use the Silicon Valley tech entrepreneur mm. new sovereignty of these great powerful corporations that now dominate the globe is that in their sort of in their utopia. The the problems of uh, ordinary people are irrelevant. It doesn't matter that there is this grey, amorphous mm. underclass, almost not matter anymore. Now, almost a mist yeah. that are just holding yeah. up reality. Yeah, you have a kind of soma state of bliss, which is kind of created mm. by, you know, a, a mixture of, you know, pharmaceutical. You know, what you have is you have you have a, a mental health crisis in Britain. You have a, an unprecedented level of prescription drugs. You know, I interviewed a GP in Blackpool, which is the you know, which is the depression capital of Britain. And I sort of said, does you know what what did pharmaceutical drugs do here? What do antidepressants do? And she said, well, you could argue that they enable poverty. 
you know, what do they do? What do they do? I said, you know, do they enable poverty? And she said, that's such a complex question. But at heart, <laughs> at heart it, could be, it could be the case that, you know, essentially, what are we doing? Are we medicating people where they can endure otherwise unbearable conditions? And what is the consequence? You know, what, what are the social and economic consequences of that? What are the consequences of obesity, which is its co- correlation with socioeconomic background? You know, what is the correlation with the creation of cheap, what we call disparagingly cheap white goods, the, the crash in the price of technology so that people are absolutely addicted, stuck to technology, where, you know, when essentially, you know, 25 years ago, that technology was even beyond beyond their economic bracket. They weren't able to afford that stuff. Now, this is kind of these are big questions that I'm not saying I have the answers to, but these are the kind of macro issues that we should be tackling and not not kind of um, separating off you know fats over here Mm. and it's unconnected to poverty Mm. technology is unconnected to aspiration everything is connected and you have to understand that there's a mental health crisis uh, but the mental health crisis is itself a result of these of this economic paradigm of course. that's incredible so of it's in creating people that for whom life is unbearable and instead of going oh should we look at this economic model oh no simply drug the people that are, are, are the offcuts of this problem between mental health and your and your and your income i mean blackpool is the is one of the most depressed cities in britain it also has some the there's a direct correlation between obesity and Britain being the most overworked, underpaid country. I mean, those two things are not not an accident. But even beyond the income, Jack, mm. is the the quality of life that people are living. Is mm. if you are meaningless and your life is meaningless mm. and you have no value and you have no purpose and mm. your role in society is simply to consume, knowing that you consumed, you are what you eat and what you eat are disposable products and you are a disposable yeah. product. That that's going to induce a huge existential crisis I, I have the image of like you know when you're dealing with a liar and like all the evidence points yeah. to like yeah. like you know hold on a minute it's causing a mental health crisis don't worry just drug them it's causing an ecological crisis don't worry we'll go to the moon yeah. it's like well why don't you deal with the actual thing yeah. of like you can't run life because, as a profit making machine you know anymore what? because there's a struggle I think that's dead dead right and I think there's a struggle I think the struggle that people don't realise they see capitalism as this monolithic evil they don't they think oh there's these companies are trying to screw everyone over actually the reality is the real struggle now is not between workers and bosses it's between ceos who of companies who genuinely want to bring about change there's paul there's a guy um who runs unilever and i he, he said what i said what's your greatest achievement he said was to get rid of the hedge fund managers to get rid of short money short-term profit motive within this company we have to do something mm. about global warming when you speak to them they talk like they're at occupy or something they don't talk <laughs> like they they don't talk like they're the ceo of a global corporation <laughs> You know, these, and, and the reason why is because they know that government can't do it. Paris, Paris climate change yeah. is a failure. Government can't do this stuff. It's almost like they think no one else can do it. We've got the power. We have to do it. So the struggle of the future will be business versus business. It will be the business visions of people like Mark Zuckerberg, who basically said, essentially, in that Facebook thing that he put up, I am going to stand for president because now he's seen that Trump can do it, his version versus Trump's version. Mm. That's what you'll have. You'll have competing business visions of what the future should be. Except all of these people, without 
human beings are nothing. The resource yeah. is ordinary people. Unless someone can bypass that, unless people say that the reason that you're engaged in this economic game is so that other people can benefit and facilitate and the only way to change it is to disengage from the economic gain and the only way you're going to be able to do that is by finding an alternative to making yourself feel better. Yeah. You know, unless be, and, and like for me, this is where religion becomes yeah. interesting it's because it's a model that exists outside economics, although it was co-opted by economics early in its well, life. Well, is it a surprise that religion is fighting back when we look at religion in various forms as being the last... Basically there's no result there's, there's no accident that jihadism stands as a kind of almost as a as a sort of caliphate black flag alternative that doesn't have to be the only alternative but again rather like trump it's an inarticulated slightly incohesive difficult to comprehend mm. version of an alternative because fear like on an emotional level fear and desire mm. of that they are irrational you yeah. people are being kept in an irrational state uh, 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 to perpetuate consuming so yeah. that fear and desire is basically what you're continually feeling these yeah. are irrational states mm. so irrational alternatives seem attractive mm. i like you know i think that trump was just deserts if you like, if mm. you feed people that information mm. continually jingoism tell oh. people that nothing has any meaning Eventually, you will get mm. this, and bre Brexit the same thing. I feel mm, that you, mm. the conditions were created for it. Now there are the, there are alter, alternate narratives even within this global context. I'm very interested in the example of China because they exist outside of mm. our like yeah. a, our story. So yeah. can you tell us what the significance so of China? China is? You, you, China, you have the kind of you know when I talked about the different corporations and you have Putin running China, uh, Russia PLC. You've got, you know, Trump like kind of failing Chrysler of the United States, you know, like some mid mid 70s corporation. Then if you look mm -hmm. at China, China's quietly getting on with it. And the interesting thing is they've squared the circle of democracy and, you know, growth. They've, you know, when you go to Davos, what you hear, you know, which is the meeting of the, the heads of government every year, the annual meeting in Switzerland. The endless debate is how does democracy get in the way? You know, is democracy compatible with the future? You know, as though democracy is in crisis. There's endless discussion about democracy being in crisis. In China, what happened? In China, they basically, they, Tiananmen Square was, the, was, a, was a watershed because at that moment, it appeared as if democracy was going to have to be the thing that the ruling party gave away to the middle class. No. You don't need to do that. What you need to do is you need to sell them consumer goods. You need to move them into being an aspirant middle class like a Western middle class. You can buy off any demands for democracy. And so China squared that circle. How did it do it? So it made consumer goods available because without... Essentially turned, you know, China used to be the workshop of the West. So, you know, you'd always mm. have like, like when I was a kid, I have my... Yeah, know, made in cars. China. Yeah, made in China on the thing. No longer now. Made it now. Now it's China's turn to be like the West was and to become this, you know, the largest market in the world. And essentially, we produce, or Africa, or whoever, India, whoever decides to become the workshop for China, produces cheap goods for China. China is the country that the the planet now pivots on. You know, China basically bailed out the United States after the after the subprime so, crash. So you know, it's basically like a giant HSBC loan. You know, China is the bank. And that's really the world. yeah. After that crash, China mm, yeah, twi twice. It. China has bailed out the U.S. So that means America is in debt to China. 
yeah, you know, when you're talking about these secret deals that yeah. govern the world. So that is that is happening on a na- that is happening at the level of sovereign or at least national states, right? That's not, or is it? Ultimate? Well, because because what you've got is you've got China operating like a like a corporation. So it's like you but know, more it's a corporation with a board, yeah, like a highly successful corporation. But you know what's interesting is the Chinese they have this. Last, actually, this year they launched Obor, which is their grand plan for the future of the planet. Sounds one bloody terrifying. Obor, one belt, one road. It's the recreation of the Silk Road, which was basically wow. the trade route to the west, the trade route that connects the planet, globalized the planet. What they see is they see China creating a new Silk Road, but they're in charge. They also see the unprecedented need for. Uh, power in terms of you know the the pollutant aspect of what's going to happen with growth they see that being dealt with by an by an unprecedented rise in in investment in global uh, in in sorry in solar and wind power and so they they also there's sort of a weird combination of ultra frightening and ultra optimistic it's like you don't know which way you don't know which way they're going to go and you don't quite know how to read it it's a kind of combo of the two i have two questions i hope you can answer one is how did they avoid democracy just through consumerism what did they do just goes oh yeah don't worry you can have these products basically the end you know tiananmen square marked was it was a catalyst in terms of you know i remember it was a major major people came out the street the man with the shopping bags in front of a tank we'll never forget that guy yeah yeah Yeah, like like, so but but how did that like so that people were demanding we want to be engaged in power and but instead, it was like, no, 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 you can have these yes, things. But how yeah. do you actually, what does that actually mean? Well, I think because how what you, you do is you create, I mean, in a way, the, the you know, China has a very deep-seated, with a very deep-rooted um, belief in the state, in loyalty to the state, the individual and the state being as one. They come from this idea, the doctrine of the mean, which is an Asian principle that, you know, essentially the any kind of dispute, a dispute between you and I, you're not right, I'm not right. But the solution lies in the middle, in a place that neither you nor I have thought of. So it's a kind of, it's a, the doctrine of the mean is a, is a kind of, it's a, it's a philosophy of how you deal with problems, how you deal with solutions. We come from a kind of completely different, we come from the enlightenment, from the idea of a discourse me putting my argument, you putting your argument, either you're right or I'm right. So One it's of combative. Gonna, so it's combative, you know, which was the dialectic, you know. Mm. So we come from a completely different place. So there's a sort of a spiritual... It's a fundamental thing. It's a, fun, it's a fundamentally part of what it is to be Chinese, is this notion. Yes, and that would not have been... Uh, that wouldn't have been underwritten by ideas of statehood initially. That would have been sort of self and otherness, wouldn't yeah, it? That, right. you know, that in an original... Confucian yeah, the terms. Rice, well, the rice field being this really important thing, the rice field being a sort of symbol of the state so that the, the grains of rice are like the citizens. They're all part of the greater good of the state and that you understand that your place is as part of the state, whereas we have, we don't, we have, don't have that notion at all. We have the notion of the hunter-gatherer or the, you know, we have More a very... individualistic. In, yeah, an individualistic in, sense, yeah. So, that, so China has sort of philosophical roots that are going to help them prevail that, yeah. because we, we because of like our, our identity myths have got individualism stitched into them. Yeah. So, like, but how is yeah. how, how is so? It, but it's still pre- presumably it's a stratified society, China. Yeah. Like, so they've sort of diverted from any idea of sort of equality. Yeah. Well, it's interesting, isn't it? Because you have you have a very you you still have demands for rights. You still have a middle class. You still have you're still the human beings will always demand what human beings demand. And so I think 
the the situation for China, and I'm not an expert on China, but you know, if you get one in, it'll be very interesting to hear what they have to say about this. But it seems to me that the future for China lies in they're they're very cleverly avoiding the Western route. They don't want to take the route that the United States took. They don't want to be the country that became a superpower and then went into decline. You know? Yes. And so, you know, it's a, and and I think part of that key to that is staying true to the philosophy. And just this year, uh, you know, you know, Jinping has basically become uh, the ultimate. He's 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 given himself the highest accolade. You know, he's the new Mao. So he's absolutely total. You know, he has total power over the state. He is the state. What is China's relationship with corporations then? Like they have avoided well, some of the dilemmas that we have. It's fascinating. It's really interesting because if you look at how Western corporations bend themselves towards the Chinese market, because what they see is they see the biggest market on the world, in the world. And so how do we how do we go into that market? You know, Apple, Google, they, you see that they have their own versions of all the tech brands that we already have. So to some degree, do they need to do they need to even have our tech brands? They don't need to ape us anymore. Chinese have no sense of needing to ape the West anymore. You know, they're doing their own thing in gene in um uh, all the, the the gene editing that they're doing now, the CRISPR nine stuff. I don't know if you know about all that, but it's basically well, they're absolutely leading the world. You know, so it's that that's it, there's no sense in which I think we patronizingly looked at China always as like you know how is it going to develop? How is it going to leapfrog us? Well, it's just going. They just think about the world in a different way from us. I see. It's not a, a, a narrative that exists as a comparative, except from our perspective. They have their own original yeah. ideology that is distinct and separate and now and no longer needs to see itself in dialectic or discourse with our Western narrative. Yeah. And in fact, according to their own natures and your motif, they have a self-contained ideology where the individual and the state can have a harmonious relationship. And this is going to be hugely beneficial for them going forward. And the thing that you said to, uh, a moment ago, Jacques, about uh, the combustible force of a growing underclass and a dissatisfied middle class, I'm very interested <clears throat> in engaging and understanding mm. these forces. One thing uh, that is interesting to me is with, the dis uh, with this sort of, uh, sort of recent attempt to re-engage national identity, like, I mean, the, the mm. examples we've mentioned, Trump, Brexit, stuff mm. that's happening throughout Europe, and it's... it's um, Destined to fail, yeah. these ideas. People marching in Charlottesville aren't going to get what they want. People that want to reimpose a national yeah. identity, they're not going to get what they want. The sort of source satisfaction mm. and pain mm. will continue. And many of the, the examples that you've given across this show of like yeah. health crisis, agricultural crisis, they all point to the power of these transnational corporations. Now, when people are saying what we want is to you know condemn migrants, just, yeah. uh, they are simply another symptom of yeah. the problem that you have diagnosed yeah. how do you think we can engage the en energy of uh, mm. the, you know these you know, basically yeah. everybody in the world yeah. how do you direct that how do you tell this story how what have you learned it's about just, it's you know it's all i make these series and i try to analyze in as objective a way as possible how things work you know how the world works and what people say to me every single time is what are the solutions? What's your solution to this? What do we do? And in a way, that is enough that people ask that question because we're at a moment where we can't talk about revolution 
in a 20th century way. We can't talk about people going to the barricades and deciding that they're going to take over the post office or something. <laughs> you know, that isn't going to happen. Got the post yeah, office. Yeah, got the post office. Everyone's been shot. <laughs> <laughs> we're going to we're going to a space where you know it's it's a it's. That thing that you mentioned earlier about the super micro and the super macro, it's kind of, we laugh when we put stuff in our recycling bin. But, you know, I went to Detroit and went to Camden, New Jersey, which is the most poverty-stricken city, the most crime-ridden city in America. But people are moving there because it's super cheap. It's like basically you've got people starting up businesses like a, you know, and you just think, you know, there's kind of something... They're growing vegetables in their front. There's something kind of laughable and laudable and brilliant at the same time about people just doing stuff for themselves. It's almost a kind of millennial generational um, sort of reaction to this idea that you've got to be on Twitter and Facebook and whatever it is endlessly. You know, it's a kind of almost like a progressive Ludditism or something. You know, mm-hmm. do you see what I mean? You know, the kind of techno prairie. Someone said, oh, yeah, we're on the techno prairie. We're all got Wi-Fi, but I'm growing carrots. You know, it's kind of like I think that's I think there's going to be 50 different strains of rebellion against the system, whatever the hell the system is, you know. Mm. And I think, you know, it'll take the form of those guys who've just bought one inch of the Trump wall. You know, today they've decided to buy a meter of the ground where Trump plans to build the wall across Mexico. And they've said, we're going to make it legally impossible for him to do so. That is a clever lateral way of rebelling. And I think that that's what human beings are doing all the time. You know, I try to buy South the, in a kind of prosaic way. I try to basically the, the auction, the, franchise was up for southeastern railways the most failing british railway and commuters have a miserable time i said to the bbc and to the commuters why don't we try and run the railway ourselves why don't we bid for the franchise we put together a bid just from all the people who are on the train you had expertise on the train Mm. of like you had nurses care Mm. workers accountants every conceivable hedge fund managers every conceivable person brought together for the purposes of a common good and the department of transport turned it down just simply because we weren't they said we hadn't gone through the right hoops but essentially we put together a credible plan which was then taken on board by them and you think that's kind of the future thinking laterally thinking differently connecting with people in unexpected ways and who the hell knows what will happen Revolution, I suppose, is taking your power back. It's saying, I'm going to have my power. I'm not going to defer it. I'm not going to subscribe to other people's ideas and systems. And whether it is uh, you know, growing vegetables on a techno yeah. prairie or refusing to participate economically, it, it's this sense that you have authority and authorship of your own life. Something you said earlier about the CA- CEOs themselves sort of wanting to resolve these problems, I find quite inspiring because mm. all of these systems and ideas are built upon people and are resourced by people and require people in order to to perpetuate themselves. Mm -hmm. And what that makes me think, Jacques, is that that if you can buy... What people are trying to do, like uh, at the arse Mm -hmm. end of this, Mm -hmm. necking antidepressants in Blackpool and eating bad, salty, sugary food and buying crap disposable goods, they're trying to feel good. They're trying to feel happy. And uh, and the system that they are trying to process these feelings through can no longer provide for them. So I I feel that what you said, like, you know, there'll be 50 different ways, that the important... The the, the how is not important. The thing that's important is that you just start to, that you start to 
reclaim your power. You know, it's a very middle class. I hate people in a way who are engaged in politics because to me it's quite a bourgeois kind of. Yeah, it's quite an it's quite an interesting thing that we even think we have the luxury of sitting here like we are discussing these things. Most people are just trying to survive. And you buy a bag of chips after having done a 16-hour shift. You don't give a toss about global economics or corporations and so on. But you want, one thing you want is what you said, is you want your life to be better. And it's sort of that's why, you know, changing your life and doing it at the micro level is kind of revolutionary. Because that's what matters to people. Yes, that's actually what matters. It seems abstract because, like, in some senses, you know, we live in infinite space, but we also live in Camden, New Jersey. The yeah. idea of infinite space or the globe is ought be abstract. It's nice that we know it, but the fact is, we live in ourselves. We live in our community, and we need to have different yeah. relationships at that well, level. That's really community. You see, when I when I was in New Jersey, the reason I was, you know, I was I had this sort of slightly without sounding too weird i had a kind of epiphany moment where i was sort of in the street and you've got like drug dealers cavorting around on like children's bikes and things it's just sofas in the middle of the road it's just like the weird you know it's like a joke it's like the wire but for real and you're sort of there and there was this guy and he was like he was busking and he was like on a street corner and he had a lollipop he had a broken up guitar which he put, put tape on and he was using the lollipop as a plectrum and i thought no one's going to, you know, no one's going to get, you're like an entrepreneur. No one's going to give you money. <laughs> you're in like the most depressed place in the world. He was giving it a go. Do you know what I mean? He was like giving it a go. And I thought, my God, it's like you walk down a street, any street in Britain or anywhere in the world, and you see 50 businesses, some of which will fail, some of which, are, and it's like all of them, somebody's had some crazy idea to start a business and they've had a go. And you think there's something sort of inspiring, I think, about the idea of people then utilising that spirit, that human spirit to survive, but then doing something together. Everyone who was in, in Camden in New Jersey said to me, the reason we moved here is because of community. They said, we feel connected to the other businesses. We are all together trying to make the community work. We're employing local people. I spoke to a guy who worked in the print works, and he said, I would 100% be dead. Oh, he was a drug dealer. He'd been a drug dealer for 20 years. He ended up getting a job for the first time in this place. He said, I would 100% be dead if these two 19-year-olds hadn't come here and started this print works. And you think, and he, and they, and they were only hiring people from 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 that. So maybe rebuilding community. What do we have in Britain? We have isolate, isolated, atomized people who don't know their neighbours, don't know anyone old, people who live in solitary lives and are unconnected to anyone. Building community is really at the heart of what could happen. We unthinkingly submit our ingenuity to a pre-existing system that has at its heart, not as you said earlier, as a Machiavellian intent, mm. but just as its uh, just unthinking is. MO, mm. our subjugation. It re so immediately you say our business is going to make money in order to. And the, the other problem built in is that we still try to use sort of state solutions. Well, the state will prevent yeah. transnational corporate. Well, we now know that can't happen except in China, but that has an entirely different anthropological origin. Yeah. So it seems to me that what, uh, like, you know, because I... This is the bloody thing that sort of that prevents me from being simply a narcissist is that I 
deeply, deeply care yeah. that people are suffering in this way. Yeah. It's something about it makes me very unhappy and yeah. furiously angry. I and I kind of believe it's possible for it to change that. Yeah, you yeah. must do, because otherwise you wouldn't have asked around making all these documentaries, yeah. would you, and putting yourself through all that bloody grief when you could be <laughs> out shopping with your missus and your <laughs> mother-in-law. Yeah, exactly. So there's no, some th- that's right. That's but, right. What, but this... We the, all are. We all care. But it's just uh, everyone cares, because we're human beings, aren't we? Yes. The woman who ran Coca-Cola said to me, look, um, she said to me, I am, you know, I accused her and their company of creating obesity and so on, you know, high fructose corn syrup and all the rest of it. And she turned to me and she said, yes, we did all that. We didn't know what we were going to do. We didn't know that was going to be the end result. And then she turned to me and she said, I am a mother. And I thought it was an interesting thing to say because she was sort of saying, I am a human being. Yes. Please be reminded I am human. I understand the consequences of these decisions. And... That is, you kind of have to hope that's that fantastic. that's, you know, interesting. That's beautiful. Interesting. It, like, remind yourself this. Because, like, you know, yeah. a minute ago, mate, you said that thing about, like, you know, sort of, you know, if you've done a 16-hour ch- shift scaffolding mm. or whatever, you probably are going to just have some chips and not think I better listen to the Russell Brand podcast. <laughs> Although you should, it is what you should be doing. So we're actually making it for you if you're a scaffolder. Please write in. Um, like, look. That you don't feel uh, connected to sort of abstract ideological ideas. But the reality is you're like your primary identity, whether you're a CEO of Coke or a mm. scaffolder, is that I'm a father, I'm a brother, I'm a mother, I'm a sister, yeah. a daughter. So like I don't like, you know, like, it's weird because we do these things where sometimes we're talking about Brexit or whatever. And yeah. I think like, Brexit don't impact my life as much as some shit my daughter might have said yeah. this morning yeah. or my dog like we're humans we're, yeah. we're living human lives these are ideological things as long as they're not impeding on our lives they should be kept in the abstract exactly. so and i think the only way to do that is to gosh this is may seem mm. somewhat bloody reductive given who i'm talking to but it's to somehow replicate the uh, communal units yeah. that we would tend to if unimpeded by post-agricultural ideological forms that benefit elites and yeah. inhibit and subjugate ordinary individuals. I think that can, that's really spot on in the sense I often think, and it's kind of really weird, but I often think about the kind of Freudian emotional underpinning of capitalism. You know how everything is really emotion. They really even these, even like we're all sitting here, Gareth's not saying a word, you're sitting over, but there's a kind of like it's a sort of dance. Everything is a kind of really nuanced psychological dance. I'm talking to you, you're talking to me. We're kind of getting on, but it could have gone badly, and it could have been. It could have like it could have rested on one thing you said or something I did. It's absolutely tiny, tiny decisions that can have massive implications. You think if you applied that to economics, you applied that to the decisions that corporations make whereby you appeal to the humanity of people, you deal with people on an emotional level. And I've seen this actually does have an effect. We kind of overplay the hard money side and we underplay the weird emotional, psychological side. Because both of those things are resourced by the primal. You know, yeah. like the, the desire to yeah, right. gain resources has a primal engine. Yeah. You know, like, so it's almost like I feel that philosophically, psychologically, it's like, excuse me, that mm. you want to navigate people to their to their cradle and their deathbed continually. Like, you were yeah. born once and you are going to die. Now, yeah. let's, let's accept that basis and make decisions from there. Not continually in the, well, I'm the CEO. I've got to <laughs> exactly. do this by Wednesday. We've got a pie chart or whatever it is they have now. So, like, you know, take these people that come up with these 
yeah. ludicrous maxims and ideas and oh no it's a, an opportunity that the, the, the earth's only got 60 harvests in it yeah. I go no 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 you're going to die yeah. you can't like, you know and that's why well, the reason that I sort of am interested in religion is not because of the sort of yeah. the bizarre cultural artifacts that it, that it accrues as a result of its time of origin or the ludicrous yeah. prejudice that one finds no but because it's dealing with the fundamental you're born you're going to die you experience things that seem to be very similar from what other people are experiencing can we build systems on that basis? And because I suppose there are sort of differences between us, it seems that what we require are communities that are of a certain size, where the, the individual members of that community have power within that community, yeah. that other communities are allowed to be run according to their own values, and that the idea of that being on a national level these days is finished, yeah. because it's too many people to do it to, and the state no longer has the legitimacy of being the thing that defends us from, I don't know, the, the barbarian whether those are corporate barbarians yeah. or barbarians that are outside of our so, sovereignty. 100%. It's like Aristotelian, isn't it? You're basically saying you're making an argument for the Greek polis, for the, for the city-state, a state that Aristotle said had to have a defined boundary in terms of its size, number of inhabitants for it to work. Economically, it could only work at this scale. Any bigger, it becomes corrupted, it becomes destroyed. You know, it's kind of interesting, isn't it? How yeah. far have we come? That is the the argument I'm making. It might be a bit even smaller than the city because of uh, chimps can only handle 75 people. <laughs> so it's like an Aristotle city. but the chimp city. The, the chi- <laughs> the chimp city. Well, under the skin has finally reached the conclusion it's a city full of chimps scratching themselves, picking stuff out of each other's hair and doing things that chimps do. So your book, uh, uh, Done, The Secret yeah. Deals That Are Changing the World, uh, it is out now. Yeah, it is now. Now, apparently, yeah. And the paperback's out in February, but it's out now. Yeah, get this book. Now. I'll be getting it and reading it. Don't feel mad and weird and conflicted that you're probably buying it from Amazon. Simply accept <laughs> that this is the way the world is now. I say thank God for capitalism. We, what, because we, what would we be doing? This we is like you'll here. be listening to this on your iPhone. You'll be buying my book and Jack's book from Amazon, and hopefully they think just going listlessly planting a carrot in your front garden. I'm taking my power back. Have that, Monsanto. Actually, the seed was made by Monsanto, and it's copyrighted. You can't plant it there. Oh, damn you. Damn you, God. No, now you're talking. You've started the right conversation finally. Uh, cheers, Jack. That was uh, yeah, an amazing brilliant. chat. That was brilliant. Thank Thanks, you so man. much. Thank that you. was really brilliant. good. This show was sponsored, of course, by my new book, Recovery, which is available now. You can order it on Amazon. Also, come check me on my rebirth tour, Birmingham, 5th of December, Leicester, 6th of December, Brixton, 19th of December. And if you like this show, subscribe to it and give it five stars on whatever platform you're downloading it from. Thank you very much. That was Under the Skin with Russell Brand.